Hey, First Christian Church. My name is Ben Allen. I am the worship pastor here, so I know I've, you've probably either seen me. I don't know if I haven't met everyone uh, yet, but it, it will be a uh, joy when I finally do get to meet you. Uh, and to those who are online or who are uh, listening on the radio, uh, if you haven't been able to, if we haven't been able to meet yet, I hope for the opportunity at some point in the future here to introduce myself to you in person. Uh, it was a very great prayer, actually. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, Lord, pray for just uh, COVID to end, honestly. Uh, what a, what a blessing that will be when uh, eventually we can see everyone in person uh, without, without the hesitation. So but until then, stay healthy, be well, of course. Um, uh, but today, also, we have the opportunity anyway to rejoice and celebrate because Jesus Christ is still alive and uh, he, we've been made alive with him. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's get a round of applause for the Lord. Uh, also, thank you very much to the youth team. Uh, I forgot to say this last, last hour. I, I work with each of these students uh, on a you know, weekly rotation w- with adults as well, but um, they're just doing an excellent job, kind of taking my job for me this weekend. <laughs> so um, very, very thankful for that. Uh, and uh, so uh, perhaps your conversations and your social media feeds have been like mine over the last year, maybe last week, uh, and that is to say... Uh, vitriolic, just not very, not very pleasant to be uh, on social media as of late, whether it's about the presidential campaign or the pandemic and masks, uh, growing social unrest, uh, whatever it is, I have read um, some vile and awful things from people, uh, from every political and social leaning, uh, even individuals that I would consider good friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, simply being short and rude towards those with opposing views. And simply put, there is no room for that on our tongues or on our minds, and especially not in the kingdom. But I will say it was a fortunate thing this week to also go online and be reminded by my brothers and sisters in Christ uh, that in the midst of all this uncertainty, there's no good real or true good reason for us to be afraid, and there's only one good reason to hope. Uh, No matter which side you might lean on politically, uh, how you feel about certain uh, social issues right now, it's true. There's no good reason to be afraid, and there's only one good reason to really have hope. Um, because Christ, above all, has been given all power and authority. That is the root of our hope. In fact, this is one of the last things Jesus tells the disciples before he ascends to heaven. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 says, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not to a president, uh, not to any one nation, not to any one government or pastor or spiritual leader. Whatever power anyone here uh, might have is a mere shadow of the authority wielded at the hands of Christ our King. And I know, and I felt it myself, that sometimes it's difficult to ascribe to Christ that kind of power when we look at the world around us. Power seems to be a hot commodity among men and women, a currency for which a brother will slay his own brother. And in a world that is constantly vying and wrestling with itself to see who can take control, who can lead, who can assume full authority, we must be reminded that whoever gets a hold of power never really has it. What they grasp is a facade, a distraction, an inauthentic replica, which comes and goes with the wind and falls to ashes as quickly as it's accrued. It's like if your friend tells you that uh, he owns the actual DeLorean from Back to the Future and paid 2,000 bucks for it from a guy on the side of the road, right? He, he pulls in, it's just a gray Honda Civic, and the doors swing this way instead of this way, and you're like, that's not real. You've never seen the movie. You don't even know what a DeLorean looks like. You are 100% sure that your friend got scammed. And when we witness claims of power on any level, we ought to be filled with a similar level of healthy doubt. Simply put, true power is not even a real currency in the world theater. Because all power belongs in the hands of Christ. You simply cannot have it. I cannot wield it. And I don't mean it in any way vainly when I say that I thank my good and my mighty God that that's the case, that that is true. Because we can put our hope in the one who has the power. That is uh, where our hope comes from. Our hope is in the one who has the power. Now a statement like that sounds good on paper, 
That's why I wrote it down here, actually. Uh, but it's also uh, might cause you some hesitation. Uh, <laughs> in almost every book you've ever read, any show you've watched, any movie you've seen, if you just look back at history, right, the one with absolute power is often the threat, the villain which our heroes uh, must destroy or overcome. The one claiming power is uh, a bad thing, right? Anyone claiming absolute power is usually the villain of the story. Uh, this is similar to how we view power-hungry maniacs of history, like I said, uh, whether it's the King of Babylon or tyrant King George III or Adolf Hitler, whoever wields or strives for total control is often a threat to our hope. So it makes sense that a statement like, we can put our hope in the one who has the power, may actually raise quite a few questions, uh, concerning questions in our minds. So we're going to address some of those questions this morning and ultimately find that Christ's power is greater and far better than what we can know. And as previously stated, it will be worthy of our hope. It is worthy of our hope. So we're going to ask you a few, a few questions. So here's the first question that I want, to, I want us to uh, wrestle with. How can we be sure that Jesus actually has all the power, right? He's made a claim, uh, but how do we know he's not just making a claim? Can we be fully confident that Jesus actually holds the power which he says he has? Well, there's a few ways you can draw this conclusion uh, from Scripture, I think. Whether it's his godhood, you're talking about his divinity, all of the Gospel of John really emphasizes uh, fully God, fully man. Uh, but there's also uh, the transfiguration, right? Uh, then there's the resurrection in which he actually conquers death. Uh, however, I want to draw the conclusion. How can we be sure that Jesus actually has all the power? I want to draw this conclusion by comparing Christ's authority to that of other leaders, how we understand authority here in this world. If you have your Bibles, please feel free to open up. We're going to open up to John 18, 33 to 38. It'll also be on the screen. Um, but this immediately proceeds uh, right, right before uh, Jesus' execution at the hands of the Pharisees, uh, and he's discussing his authority with Pontius Pilate. And in this scenario, seemingly, the, uh, the power scale here, it looks like Pilate is in control, he has all the power in the situation, and Jesus is, you know, minutes, from, hours from his death. So I'm going to read from uh, chapter 18, 33. It says this, uh, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Do you, uh, Sorry, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Uh, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? If Jesus' kingdom was of this world, I want to point this out first. He says my kingdom is not of this world. If Jesus' kingdom was of this world, then his power is subject to the whim of the one who kills him. Right? If you're dead, you lose your power. No king in history has retained authority when his head is gone. But Jesus affirms, my kingdom is not of this world. And therefore, he doesn't play by this world's rules, and neither does his kingdom. Death does not remove Christ's authority. If anything, it emphasizes, it glorifies his authority. Uh, he has conquered death by resurrecting. And more than that, he emphasizes that his authority is grounded in the fact that he testifies to truth. And Pilate responds, what is truth? A very important question. Four chapters earlier, Jesus tells us, uh, we all know the verse, uh, chapter 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus defines truth as himself, God in the flesh. Truth made manifest in Jesus. And then he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus, being truth, God manifested, one with God the Father, affords him all authority. 
So how can we be sure that Jesus has all the power in fact? Well, first I want to say we know that Jesus has the power because truth has a direct positive correlation to power, right? We can look here on the screen. We have a graph. You can kind of see it. Uh, right here, you got truth and you got power, or at least perceived truth on the left there, and there's a positive correlation. The more truth you acquire, the more power, in fact, you acquire. Uh, for us, uh, historically speaking, truth is a tool used by rulers and authorities in order to be ascribed favor and power by the people. That's generally true. Uh, I don't think it's hard to see it happening around the world. It happens in dictatorships where leaders offer the people a very strict kind of truth uh, that paints them in an exclusively positive light. This is, how, uh, this is why leaders like Kim Jong-un stay in power. They're even deified by people. Uh, a very specific form of the truth is used in order to maintain their authority. It happens uh, here in America, too, whether it's through the media narrative on every side, uh, spinning the truth to say whatever benefits their bias and authority. I think we're all guilty of it. Uh, we talk about division in our country, uh, but it's because there are various versions of the truth going around all the time. I apologize, I'm having with the mic a little bit. Uh, this has happened around the world for all time. You've heard it said that history is written by the victors. This is why. Victors, in order to maintain their power, write the truth in such a way that presents their leaders and mission as heroic or morally upright. They'll start wars and say that this was the good thing, this was necessary for ourselves, for our well-being and our posterity. And I'm not saying that history is never correct or truthful. All I'm saying is that anyone in authority who wants to keep it will treat truth to some level as a manipulable resource in order to maintain power. It was true of Rome. It's been true of America. It's even true of the church. Uh, last, uh, last Saturday, yeah, we had Halloween, right, October 31st. But that's also uh, this past uh, October 31st was the 503rd anniversary of uh, Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And that was his challenge to the Catholic Church uh, in their practice of selling salvation, essentially, to peasants and other people who did not, did not know the biblical text. Uh, he, he posted this door and he said, hey, you are manipulating the biblical truth in order to maintain power and to, to benefit yourselves. You are gaining financial... You are receiving financial gain and retaining power by fooling people into a false truth, a false narrative of the gospel. You are cheapening the sacrifice of Christ. So I think that when Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? It's a pretty rhetorical, sarcastic question. He's being sardonic. Uh, Pilate, in his position of power, views truth as entirely flexible, a tool that he can manipulate to maintain his power. You can even kind of see it when he's uh, addressing uh, the, the crowd later, and they say, give us Barabbas. As far as, uh, as, far as Pilate's concerned, he doesn't care. He, he just says do what you want, I'm going to wipe my hands clean, but as long as you look, at, even if this isn't true, even if this is, you know, the Jewish truth right now in this particular situation, I will, uh, I will submit to it in order that I might retain my power, my authority, and my favor with the people, that he might just agree to truth, just as uh, the Jews are claiming truth, that Jesus is in fact guilty. But true truth, that is, Jesus Christ, is not a flexible resource. Jesus Christ is not a worldly resource. No one has the ability to bend true truth to their whim. True truth is a firm and unshaking constant. Uh, truth is rigid and unchanging. Uh, no one can wield truth apart from Christ because Jesus is, in fact, all truth. So scripture reveals to us. So back to the original question. How can we be sure that Jesus actually has all the power? Well, I have a basic syllogism for you. Here we go. So it says this. If Jesus is truth, and we can agree that truth directly correlates to power, then Jesus, in fact, has all the power. If Jesus is truth and truth directly correlates the power, then Jesus has, in fact, all the power. Which also, side note, I would like to reiterate something that uh, Dia talked about a few weeks ago, but this is, uh, you know, is very uh, closely related to truth, how we understand true truth. Godly, uh, divinely revealed absolute truth is a wonderful blessing from God. Truth is a good thing. 
um, theological fundamentals in the church are a necessity to abiding and resting in the hope of Christ. Uh, I see that there is a growing disinterest in the church's historic affinity for biblical doctrine, as if doctrine somehow gets in the way of the gospel and our ability to share the love of Christ. But that's not true. Doctrine is a fundamental good thing. Doctrine is a gift from God, revealed truth, that we might even just be able to derive a true method of salvation from the biblical text. Uh, this is something that other countries and other pagan nations and, and other pagan faiths just simply have not been afforded throughout history. A lot of, people, a lot of other cultures would spend time sacrificing what, sacrificing children, sacrificing whatever, sacrificing lambs, trying to appease the gods that aren't even real. But we have truth revealed to us. God is so good enough, is good enough to offer us a roadmap to salvation through the biblical text. Abandoning sound doctrine is to abandon truth, and to abandon truth is to deny the authority and power of Christ and ultimately abandon our hope. I'm convinced that hopelessness is so pervasive in our world today because we've ascribed to a social zeitgeist that says truth is flexible, but true truth is not flexible. It is a solid rock, a firm foundation, a cornerstone which sustains our very being. So please, parents in the room, future parents, uh, older siblings, teachers, for the sake of the kingdom's posterity, it's imperative that we pass along true biblical doctrine and theology, teach of Christ's incarnation, his full divinity and his full humanity. Teach of God's Trinitarian nature, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Teach of the curse of sin and the resulting separation between us and God. Uh, teach and rejoice in God's abundant love and grace as displayed in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Uh, teach of the Holy Spirit which indwells in, this, in the saints and the body of believers. Teach of the resurrection, ascension, and glory of Christ who now sits at the right hand of the Father. Teach them about the church that we're more than a weekly gathering, but we are a dwelling place of the living God, the bride of Christ for whom Christ returns and teach of the promise of his return and the restoration of all things at the hand of our glorious king. These things are simply not up for debate. And the church has held fast to these for two millennia because truth is fundamentally a blessing to us. And to young ones here, to students, especially middle and high schoolers, I remember high school pretty well, uh, don't sacrifice the truth of scripture. The truth of scripture, Jesus Christ, is a foundation. It will carry you through every uncertainty, every ounce of chaos. Uh, heed the teachings of your families, of the church, of those older than you, uh, you are growing up in a world in which truth has reducing value. By the day, truth has little value. But hear me saying that from one young guy uh, who was in your boat not that long ago, if you want certainty, cling to truth. Cling to the truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified. But I'll digress from that argument for now. Uh, I just want to ask the question again. How can we be sure that Jesus, in fact, has the power? Well, because if Jesus is truth, and truth has a direct positive correlation to power, then Jesus, in fact, has all the power. So the second question then, how can we trust that Christ will wield power perfectly? Okay, so Jesus has all the power, if we can agree to that. Uh, how do we know that Jesus will, in fact, wield power perfectly? Again, I think you can draw this conclusion from the text in a few different ways, such as when he uses his power to heal the sick or cast out demons, or when he calms storms and feeds the 5,000. Jesus is so loving and gracious with the way he utilizes his power here on the earth. But I again want to compare how Christ uses power to the way the world would often use power. Let's be honest. It's far too often that those in power mishandle it for self-gain or protection. Uh, we hear report after report of voices of authority abusing their roles of leadership to seek self-gain. They leverage their authority, their voice, their power uh, in order to benefit themselves, even if it might rain down chaos on everyone else. Often it's the people you'd expect, the wealthy and ungodly that we naturally characterize as wicked who are guilty of such abuse. You have your dictators and your corporate leaders and movie stars and athletes and so often, uh, so often utilizing what authority they've been offered in order to self-preserve and seek their own interests. But it seems like every day another allegation is coming out about some famous person for 
sexual misconduct or mishandling of funds, but I would say that it also happens far too often among the kingdom of God. Look at King David. You can look in Scripture. Uh, the anointed king of Israel, uh, God's chosen, the bloodline from which would come the Messiah. For self-gain, David essentially assaults Bathsheba and impregnates her, and for fear of getting caught, he has her husband murdered, uh, and David comes to realize his guilt through the words of Nathan, for sure. He, he comes to repentance, full realization that he has abused his power, but my point is that even he is not immune to the temptation that comes with power. And even today, we hear report after report of pastors and spiritual leaders uh, being rece- receiving allegations because of misconduct during their ministry. Uh, I just read about a new one last week, and let me tell you, it's heartbreaking every time we read it, isn't it? Because someone has cheapened and someone has uh, weakened the power of the gospel when we do not represent the gospel well. Uh, and as a kid, I um, really loved the first uh, Spider-Man movie from 2002 with Tobey Maguire in it. Uh, I've watched that movie all the time as a kid. I remember watching it with my dad, watching with my mom. I just... You know, if there was ever a movie that your kids just, like, want to, like, put on rerun, that was kind of it for me. Um, uh, and I remember so well this interaction between Peter Parker and uh, his Uncle Ben, who passes away in the movie, but uh, you might remember the scene really well. And I think I remember also because his name was Ben, and that really struck me as, I like that name. Um, but uh, this is the line uh, that is incredibly famous now. I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about, is, with great power comes great responsibility, Right? Um, and that's true. Scripture says this just as well, uh, though in a different way. Um, in Luke 12, uh, Jesus is giving a parable about two servants who are expecting their master to return home. And one prepares the house for the master's return, uh, very responsible. And the other abuses the fact that his master's gone and he doesn't know when he's coming back uh, to get drunk and beat the other servants. And Jesus says, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. And then further down he says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. We all know this is true. And yet so often, even great figures, like King David, who ultimately goes down, is Israel's greatest king. He is the standard by which all of the Jewish kings are held, right? They falter before the temptation that comes with power and authority. Even great leaders abuse their power. Um, so I'm not making the claim that everyone abuses their power to that extent or, or to, to such a, a grave way, but not everyone is responsible with every ounce of power that they've been handed. But what's different with Jesus? <clears throat> if it seems that no one in power can truly maintain their power and authority perfectly, how can we trust that Jesus, in fact, can? Well, do you recall the betrayal of Jesus in the garden? Matthew recounts the event a bit uniquely from the other Gospels. Uh, so I want to read here, uh, verse 47, sorry, um, uh, chapter 26, 47, uh, says this. Uh, While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed them. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, uh, uh, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Uh, Classic Peter. Uh, (laughs) Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus, in a seemingly powerless moment, reaffirms to his disciples, to Judas, uh, to the chief priests, elders, and soldiers, everyone present, that he is in fact the one with all the power in the situation. 
but rather than call down legions of angels like he knows he can do, and in a way that, you know, uh, we think it'd be perfectly justified for him to do, he relents of the power instead that he might be subjected to death on a cross for the sake of every person in that garden, for every soul upon the earth, for you and for me, and for the sake of the next generations until he comes again. And unlike rulers of this world, even those we might consider to be overall good leaders, Jesus has demonstrated perfect use of power in choosing to not use it. Uh, Rather than benefiting himself, he might benefit anyone and everyone else. In Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11, it reiterates this perfectly. He says, uh, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So back to the question, question number two. How can we be sure that Jesus will in fact wield power perfectly? Because he already has. He's not overcome by the allure of power, but he has overcome its allure. Uh, by submitting to death. He does not abuse his power or abuse others with it, but rather sets it aside that he might be abused by earthly power on our behalf. So then the last question. How does this give us hope? Sure, Jesus has all authority, and sure, he wields authority perfectly. But what does that mean for us? Where do, what is our source of hope? I think it's uh, fairly evident uh, in the text which was read for us at the beginning of the message. Uh, Revelation 7 depicts a glorious scene of people from every tribe, every nation, every people, every tongue bowing before God and before the Lamb. And Christ at the right hand of the Father is exalted high over all creation. Even the angels and the elders and the four living creatures submit to the authority and power of Christ. There is no one who remains standing. And this text demonstrates the supreme authority and power of Christ, uh, for one, but also... As a result, it demonstrates that everyone else in the room has none of it. There is no real power apart from Christ, and when all is said and done, everyone is completely powerless before the risen Lamb. We are all at an equal playing field before the Lord, and if it were anyone else, maybe we should be afraid. But when the wielder of all the power is just so good, how could we not be overflowing with hope? Here's my fundamental premise for this morning. There is hope for humanity because humanity has no true power. Satan has fooled men and women forever, uh, telling them that in order to have true power, we must seize it from one another, that those in charge have hoarded power as a resource, and so it must be taken from them in order to have peace. But scripture again reminds us over and over, you are gaining nothing from bloodshed. Uh, Again, your brothers never had true power to begin with. We never had any, and neither do you. So instead of trying to acquire power laterally this way, Scripture tells us to open our eyes and see that all power has already been claimed vertically. Before I wrap up, (laughs) yes, amen. But before I wrap up, I want to be as clear as possible, though. To ascribe to Christ all power and authority that he has claimed uh, is not a call to be apathetic to oppression or to see how power has affected our world uh, or to ignore how we see power affecting our world. Uh, We don't turn a blind eye to the suffering of the weak. Uh, to, those who are, uh, <laughs> to those who are claiming suffering, we, we are far from uh, denying them that, that, response, that right, and, and the kingdom works and walks in the way of the king. So we respond as he has asked us to. It's imperative that the church seeks justice for the oppressed, 
and loves showing mercy to the suffering. We don't deny suffering. We don't deny oppression here because Christ has claimed authority. But if anything, we are finding authority and ascribing it to Christ. That is our job. Justice and mercy means to walk humbly with your God, knowing that all things are ultimately under his judgment. Justice is not taking power so that it may be offered to another person or group or movement. Justice is only found when all power and all authority is in the hands of Jesus, that he may wield it perfectly. No one else can successfully correct uh, these power imbalances. Don't place your hope here. There's no one here that can correct these uh, mishandlings. But place your hope here. There is one from whom salvation comes. One hope for justice. There is one in whom our hope is secure. I want to read again from Revelation 7 and a few verses beyond. Uh, Powerful message, powerful text. I want to just bring that image back to light. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. So let it be blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I don't know about you, but I very much cannot wait for that day. Imagine the greatest sense of relief in the room when all of God's people ascribing to God and to the Lamb all power and might, and we can just rest knowing that it will be wielded perfectly. There's there's no risk in it. He has it all, and he will treat it well. And in so doing, he will love us. He will love us well through his power. Christ is Lord and authority is cause for true peace and hope. Salvation was paid for. Our future with God is secure. Tyson mentioned it last week. Those in Christ have a 100% chance of eternity with the good God. There is no risk there. And if you don't know that hope, if you can't find the peace that comes with Christ's lordship, if you haven't uh, offered to Christ full authority and power in your life as an individual, I implore you to talk to Tyson or talk to Dee or to myself. Uh, They'll be sitting here on the sides, here on the wings. Um, Or an elder here as well. There are plenty of people here to talk to you that would love uh, to help show you what it's like to do exactly that, to give Christ all power and authority. The worship team is going to lead us in this last song. Uh, and together we're going to profess the truth of Scripture. And as one body, uh, practice in participating in Revelation 7, giving our Jesus all authority and all power. Let's pray. Our good and mighty God, Lord Jesus, you have done the hard work. Not for your sake, but for ours. You wield, you wield power flawlessly and beautifully. Um, and you have it all. I pray that we are, we are men and women who kneel before your, before your reign, before your throne. There's no one else that uh, can replace you. No one else can get in the way. No nations, no emperors, no, no presidents, no idols. God, you alone are Lord. God, give us a heart. Compel us not to look at this world as, as passively or to look at it as lost. But Lord, see that we are your kingdom and in your kingdom you are restoring all things to you that all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all peoples will bow and profess that you are Lord. You will be given all glory, and all might. Lord Jesus, you are on the throne. We love you. We thank you, of course, for your sacrifice here on this earth, but we thank you for your perfect reign and for the eternity to come with you. It's in your glorious name we pray. Amen.